This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send Send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash unplugged. That's wise.com slash unplugged. One more time, wise.com slash unplugged. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. In the spring of 1864, President Lincoln feared that he might not be able to save the Union. The Army of the Potomac had performed poorly over the previous two years, and many Northerners were understandably critical of the war effort. Lincoln assumed he'd lose the November election, and he firmly believed a Democratic successor would seek peace immediately, spelling an end to the Union. The entire future of the United States depended on the Union Army's success in a desolate forest roughly 65 miles from the nation's capital. To discuss this battle, the Battle of the Wilderness, is John Reeves, author of the new book, A Fire in the Wilderness. At the outset of the Battle of the Wilderness, General Lee's Army of Northern Virginia remained capable of defeating the Army of the Potomac. But after two days of relentless fighting in dense Virginia woods, Lee was never again able to launch offensive operations against Grant's army. Lee, who faced tremendous difficulties replacing fallen soldiers, lost nearly 12,000 men, or 70% of his entire force, while Grant suffered 17,000 casualties. Well, the casualty numbers don't begin to convey the horror of this battle, one of the most gruesome in American history, and that says a lot considering the Civil War had many of the absolute worst battles you could imagine. The gunfire smoke and impenetrable forest made it impossible to view the enemy. Officers couldn't see their own men during the fighting. The gunfire caused the woods to catch fire, resulting in hundreds of men burning to death. One officer wrote, It was as though Christian men had turned to fiends, and hell itself had usurped the place of the earth. When the fighting finally subdued during the late evening of the second day, the usually stoical Grant threw himself down on his cot and wept. So we're going to get deep into the battle this episode, and we're going to also get into standard arguments about the Civil War, including whether or not it was ever possible for the Confederacy to win, 
And how do Grant and Lee stack up as the greatest generals in history or some of the most overrated generals in history? So I hope you enjoy this discussion with John Reeves. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here, Scott. Well, we haven't had a Civil War guest on in a while, so it's always good to have a refresher. Before we get into a specific battle, the uh, Battle of the Wilderness, which is the topic of your book and a very important Civil War battle, when I look online on uh, history websites, on history subreddits or history wiki pages that have to do with the Civil War, a topic that I see that has had growing interest recently is the issue of whether or not it was ever actually possible for the Confederacy to win. Now, for decades in Civil War scholarship, it was assumed that, of course, the Confederacy could have won, but now many people are even questioning if it was possible. And a lot of it has to do with the issue of logistics, that the Confederacy simply lacked the railroad lines, the industrial base, the manpower, the shipping, the international trade, and everything else that stacked the fact the factors against it so strongly that they never could have won, no matter how many mistakes Grant had made, no matter how many Union generals who were incompetent, who were in control, no matter how many times James Longstreet refused to march and face the Confederacy, the Confederacy could have never won. And that really seems to take the wind out of the sails of the drama of this battle. Because if the Confederacy could have never won, then really, what does it all matter? Now, for you, who's someone who's uh, research extensively into the Civil War. What's your take on this? Could the Confederacy have won? Yeah, so I begin my book with that very issue, right? That this was a, a, a turning point. And primarily because in 1864, in November, there was going to be a presidential election. So Lincoln um, was worried that if they lost the Battle of the Wilderness and Grant's army gets thrown back across the Rapidan River, just like Hooker had been thrown across the Rappahannock a year previously, that Lincoln may lose the presidential election. And he believed that his rival, who would turn out to be McClellan, uh, a former head of the Army of the Potomac, um, he assumed that his rival, the Democratic nominee, would make some sort of peace with the Confederate States of America that would probably could involve them allowing the Confederates to live, you know, in a separate country with slavery and um, confined to their borders or whatever. So there was a real fear that a loss could be a disaster for the Republic. And so, so that's just sort of the geopolitics of it. And then from a purely military point of view, I think Robert E. Lee approached it. Hey, he didn't need to conquer Pennsylvania. He needed to destroy the Army of the Potomac. And I think that that was a, a possibility in uh, May 1864, particularly at the beginning of the Battle of the Wilderness, meaning if Lee's job was to kind of harm Grant's army and push it back across the Rapidan River, that was a very doable thing. And it came quite close on the second day of the Battle of the Wilderness. Lee came very close to achieving that. Um, I would say, though, and I kind of make this point in my book, that Grant's ability to not have that happen at the wilderness and continue south to Spotsylvania Courthouse really did mean that Lee was running out of options. That in many ways, the wilderness was his one last chance to kind of affect that uh, presidential election by pushing uh, the army across back into um, you know, Union territory. So 
so it was a pivotal battle and the Overland campaign was, a, was a, I think, a, a crucial time in American history. And that's some of the things that I talk about in the book. Right. I mean, I think it's uh, hasty to completely discount the possibility of something because that's what history is, of people being shocked that something happens when they didn't think it was possible at all. And military analysts, I like to think, are smarter than I am. So they wouldn't wage a war unless they thought there was a pretty good chance of winning. And if they think there's no chance at all, they probably won't do it. That's why you don't see Cuba or Burkina Faso waging war in the United States today, because they probably think they can't win and they have good reason to think so. But let's get into 1864, where your book takes place. You talked about some of the issues going on at the time, but could you set the stage before the Battle of the Wilderness takes place? Where is Lincoln? Where is the Union in general? Where is the Army of the Potomac? And where is the Confederacy? Where is Robert E. Lee? And what are the state of affairs at this time before the battle takes place? Yeah, so as, as a lot of your listeners probably know that Grant has just become the general-in-chief of the Union Army. So he's had great success out west, um, most recently at Chattanooga. And they even um, dust off an old title for him, Lieutenant General. Uh, and so he's the general-in-chief of the Union Army in March of 1864. And he decides that in the spring campaign, and, you know, there's different names. It's often referred to as the spring campaign, the overland campaign, the wilderness campaign, but basically the attack on the Confederacy in the spring of 1864. Grant decided that as general in chief, he would preside alongside the Army of the Potomac, which was um, commanded by General Meade at the time. So, you know, Grant has been based out west, but he's coming east. He's going to go with this army and it's going to be, you know, a large scale invasion of the Confederacy. Um, roughly 120,000 soldiers were going to um, cross the Rapidan River and assault Lee. For Lee's part, and this is important to getting back to what I was mentioning earlier about Lee really doesn't have a lot of options, and one of them might be a, a stunning a, a stunning victory and, and causing Grant to retreat. But Lee is facing manpower shortages. He's facing shortages of food. Um, Lee also knows that he might not be able to replace any losses that might occur in the spring of 1864. So I think the Confederacy is sort of reeling um, it, it, it has been, you know, it lost in Tennessee. In fact, James Longstreet had been in Tennessee in late 1863 and had returned to rejoin um, the Army of Northern Virginia for this spring campaign. So I would say that to summarize, the, the Army of Northern Virginia under Lee has decent morale, but, you know, not a lot of resources and is, is facing a pretty dire situation. And Grant has a pretty large army at his disposal, has a lot of resources at his disposal. And um, maybe their big challenge is that Grant had never commanded the Army of the Potomac, was unsure how his corps commanders might perform. Um, so there was, a, there was a little bit of getting to, to know one another um, feeling with the Army of the Potomac, but those are the stakes. Um, but as I said, I don't think the stakes could have been any higher. Because I think that we sometimes discount the notion of a separate peace. You know, some kind of negotiated peace um, could have been on the table um, if 
the Union, you know, the North had grown tired of uh, the mounting losses in men and resources, and they may have just decided, let's just put an end to this if the if the fighting just were to continue on and on. Well, we're going to have a matchup that military history fans love to do, the Grant versus Lee, and uh, list their qualities or attributes and all those different things. So let's set the stage here. What are their plans for the battle, and uh, how does each side envision victory? Yeah, so Grant is looking at it strategically. So he's saying that, you know, he's going to assault Lee in Northern Virginia while Sherman is attacking um, down south in Georgia. And, um, and Butler is based in uh, outside of Richmond. So he's sort of thinking of a three-pronged attack. Lee, on the other hand, really is, you know, he's got one option that's to somehow stop Grant's uh, massive invasion. So, so that's sort of the, the kind of strategic sense. Grant decides to go around Lee's right because he wants to protect his supplies, uh, supply lines. That's significant because that's what makes Grant determined to go through the wilderness, which is a very inhospitable tract of land. Um, outside, today, it's outside of Fredericksburg, you know, several miles outside of, you know, west of Fredericksburg, Virginia. And the problem with the wilderness is it's, it's, it's very hard to move a large army through this area. And you don't, there's poor visibility. It's very hard to use your artillery. So Grant's going to temporarily have to move his army through the wilderness. And Grant and Lee aggressively decides, well, I'm going to try to pin him down in this difficult territory to fight a battle. And that my, my odds are improved in relation to the Union Army, if I can fight in this kind of difficult environment. And that's what happens on the first day. You know, Grant moves his army over the Rapidan on May 4th. And on May 5th, uh, Lee pins down, you know, uses two of his corps to pin Grant's army down in the wilderness. And then Grant decides, well, if you want to fight here, I'll fight here. Um, so, and that's how the battle begins. On, and on that first day, on May 5th, uh, Longstreet is, is not with Lee at that time. Lee felt that he had to, uh, you know, he, he had to kind of make sure that Grant didn't try to turn his left. So he left Longstreet behind. So one of the dramatic, uh, the dramatic scenes in the book and in the battle is Longstreet marching to catch up and, and join Lee. And he doesn't arrive there until the morning of day two. Uh, so the first day, Lee is even more undermanned than normal um, uh, in, in, at the beginning of the battle. Well, let's get into uh, the thick of the battle because something that you know is it's one of the most gruesome in American history, uh, which that's already a high bar to clear when we're talking about Civil War battles because this is a time period when outdated tactics are being used. They're still using Napoleonic tactics, something that I stress repeatedly in our Civil War series, that they are using tactics developed in the age of musket fire when weapons are uh, accurate to a few dozen yards. But now we're in the period of rifles and uh, mini balls where they're accurate to hundreds of yards. Men are being mowed down. There's not really a well-developed um, combat medic corps 
So sometimes men are left on battlefields for hours or days after a battle. Um, it's gruesome and horrific in ways that are almost impossible to imagine. So this, if it's one of the most gruesome of the Civil War, is really saying something. Let's get into battle. So can you tell me how this unfolds? Yes, just addressing some of your points, as you rightly say, that by this time, by by the spring of 1864, the firepower is such that the soldiers wisely know that digging in and entrenching and building breastworks is essential to protecting themselves um, in, in these sort of things. So starting in the wilderness and then continuing on to the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, you do start to see something that almost looks like trench warfare, where you have building of breastworks and soldiers firing behind um, fallen uh, trees and that where you know they would uh, build them up in front of them. Uh, so, so you have a greater desire for defensive uh, uh, tactics and you have a, a, you know, the firepower being deadly. That's number one. So it was very hard to be on the offensive in the wilderness. It was much better to be a defender. Um, secondly, you have, of course, uh, the fires that broke out in the woods and that the title, A Fire in the Wilderness, refers to that, that um, throughout the first day and the second day, you, you had the woods going on fire and these poor wounded soldiers were worried and many of them did uh, suffer from the flames. And there's a, there's a very famous um, sketch from a Civil War artist named Alfred Wad who shows um, the flames surrounding some, some soldiers carrying off a, a wounded man on a stretcher and the flames are engulfing everyone in it. And it's a truly horrific scene. And for a lot of people, some of the more literary soldiers referred it to, you know, Dante's Inferno, you know, <laughs> it had that same sort of element. And then one final thing that you mentioned, and I, I think that the wilderness is, is fascinating about the medical corps, because by 1864, they've gotten a little bit better. So they start to have you know, field hospitals, an ambulance crew, a professional ambulance crew. Like in earlier Civil War, the ambulance, uh, they were often, the, the people who performed those duties were often drunk and, you know, oftentimes they would use the band members to <laughs> help get the soldiers off the field. But now it's a, by 1864, it's a professionalized service. And um, they did tremendous work in the wilderness. But nonetheless, it was quite difficult for the wounded because once you had them in a field hospital, the wilderness is still quite a ways from Fredericksburg. And then Fredericksburg is still quite a journey to Washington, D.C., where the general hospitals were and you had more trained physicians and surgeons and what have you. So getting the soldiers from, from the wilderness to Washington, D.C. was, you know, a, an odyssey. And um, I write a little bit about that in the book, about what that entailed, getting the wounded all that way, you know, and it took days to get them there. Hey, everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. 
and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is uh, unfriendly terrain, uh, definitely, and probably not what strategists have in mind. Usually they think of a grassy open field and they can move around their figurines or uh, I'm imagining World War II generals with their, uh, you know, kind of craps table type of thing. But whatever way Civil War strategists did this, uh, I doubt they took Forrest into consideration. So what do you think are key moments in this battle that uh, lead to its outcome? Oh, yeah. So there are a lot of pivotal moments. I'd say probably the first one, well, the first attack was on the Orange Turnpike. And we'll maybe start with that one. And it shows you some of the challenges that the Union Army would face. So Grant's attitude is, the rebels are there on the turnpike, let's hit them, let's attack them. And his, uh, the Fifth Corps commander, Governor Warren's like, whoa, whoa, slow down a second, we need to prepare, we need to get ready, we need to straighten out our lines and protect our flanks. And Grant won't have it, so he pushes him forward. It's a disaster. Um, you know, you have several thousand casualties in a matter of an hour and 15 minutes, you know, or an hour and a half or so. So um, that initial encounter is, is, is a bad one. And then later that day, you finally have Grant getting the Union Army in position, though. And several miles south of the turnpike on the Orange Plank Road, um, the, the second corps commanded by uh, Winfield Scott Hancock, um, starts to get into motion and is pushing Lee and AP Hill. And fortunately for Lee, he's sort of saved by nightfall. Um, and they, we, that Grant isn't able to kind of bring all of his um, advantages and manpower to bear. 
So that's the first day. Now, the most critical moment of the entire battle was probably in the morning of day two. So I mentioned Longstreet. Longstreet that night is marching to join Lee. But unfortunately, from the first day of battle, um, Lee's troops are scattered. They're all sleeping, you know, sleeping on their guns um, because they're tired and they're in the woods. Uh, and, and they didn't um, reorganize and prepare their defenses for what might happen in the morning. And sure enough, in the morning, the Union under, and Hancock's troops um, caused Lee to, Lee's almost in disarray at 6 a.m. on May 6th, and his army is in, almost about to be destroyed. And you may or may not have heard the, this famous episode called Lee to the Rear, where Lee almost tries to command a brigade, uh, a Texas brigade on the Widow Taps farm because things are such a desperate, a desperate situation. Um, but among those soldiers who Lee's trying to command are the first uh, arrivals from Longstreet. So Longstreet, it's almost like a movie. You know, Longstreet's marching um, from the West and he arrives just in time and is able to kind of stop the destruction of, uh, um, you know, AP Hills Corps um, and is able to stabilize things and then Lee, to his credit, regains his footing and then is able to kind of turn the tables on the Union and outflank the Union Army and cause disarray for, on Hancock's side, who wisely had thought to entrench. Um, so anyway, I've given you a few of the big highlights. And then finally, later on the day two, Lee tries to outflank Grant's right and meets with some success. So one of the over the two days, you had this kind of back and forth. Um, it, it was almost like a heavyweight boxing match, where you know one minute it looks like one side is doing better, and then the next minute and the other side is doing better, um, and it looked like it could go either way. But I would say through it all, Grant kind of kept his composure. Uh, there were some kind of dicey moments there for a while, but he he knew that he had. Um, a lot of men and that it wasn't, you know, that, that there were still a lot of options. And then after the two days of slaughter in the wilderness, that's where he famously decides on May 7th that tonight we're gonna have a night march to Spotsylvania Courthouse. And despite how poorly things looked, this isn't over. In fact, this is just beginning and we're going forward. And it was a tremendous morale boost uh, for the North, because as I kind of briefly outlined, the wilderness was at best a stalemate. There really wasn't an advantage to either side. And yet the casualties were tremendous. And it was, you know, it didn't look great for the Northern side who lost more soldiers than uh, lead. The North lost more than the South, primarily because they were on the offensive, but also because of the uh, poor fighting conditions in those woods. Hmm. And um, after the night march, would you point to this as the critical event that leads to Union victory? I would, yes. You can always object to kind of being too, putting too fine a point on it and look at this or that moment of being decisive. And maybe some people might look at, you know, the failure of Pickett's charge being the pivotal moment of the Civil War. But for me, 
I, I really do feel that that decision to go south to Spotsylvania Courthouse was really the beginning of the end of, of the Confederate States of America, because to get to that earlier point that you said, once Grant decided to keep on going to Spotsylvania Courthouse, I don't think there was a whole lot Lee was going to be able to do to stop this um, infiltration. <laughs> you know what I mean? That it was almost just like the handwriting was on the wall after that. And I think it took a lot of moral courage on Grant's part because, you know, he had suffered a lot of losses. I think, a, I think sensible people would have understood if he said, hey, the price is too high to continue to do this. Um, but he didn't look at it that way. He never lost confidence in, the, uh, in his strategy and what he was trying to accomplish. And he went forward. And surprisingly, the soldiers seemed to respond positively to that decision. Um, despite, you could have imagined there would have been a lot of grumbling after the disaster in the wilderness. You know. Before getting into sort of the uh, the implications of this battle and what it means, I want to take a step out of the high level and go down to the lower level. As you're looking at individual soldier accounts of this battle, were there any stories on the field that really stuck out to you or things written in memoirs by soldiers who were there that you think make this battle unique? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I, for this book, I read a lot of just the ordinary accounts. I think a lot of them were struck by the fact that they couldn't see the enemy. So you were in a place where you didn't know who was shooting at you, you know, um, and that there was smoke and noise and just kind of your, a sensory overload. Um, and that a lot of the wounded and some of the dead would be left in bushes and kind of um, thickets and, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see them again, you know, they could kind of go by the wayside. So it was a really kind of a frightening and horrific environment for a lot of these ordinary soldiers. Um, and then one of the things that I was fascinated by for this book was how the odds of survival for these soldiers, both sides, both Union and Confederacy were low. I mean, gosh, if you were in the in either one of those armies at the beginning of the Overland campaign, your odds weren't great, um, and yet they went forward anyway. So it was it once again, there was a there was a lot of bravery, um, there was a lot of uh, dedication to their what they saw as their duty, or in some cases it was coerced. They also knew that they didn't have a lot of options. You know what I mean? That if they tried to escape, they would be executed for desertion. Um, so I, I think I really sympathized with their plight. Um, and, it, and it was a hard one. And I think we sometimes over 150 years away, I think we forget um, what it cost to win that war, you know, and it was, it was a huge sacrifice on behalf of these ordinary uh, you know, farmers and laborers from across America. You know, I wonder how did soldiers use successful tactics in this context? Because like what we said before, what they're trained on are these Napoleonic maneuvers where you have your infantry, they're moving forward, they're firing, and then everyone is always trying to outflank everybody else. You have your cavalry move in on the sides and try to get them there. The train doesn't uh, support this type of tactic. Now, um, with experiences like these, military tactics evolve over the decades. By World War I, as you said, you have 
entrenchments, you entrench, and then you can have artillery barrages that would soften up the other side, and then you would charge. By World War II, you know how to move on the squad level and go on an offense in inhospitable terrain. You have hand signals and other things, so different men know how to move. Someone will do a mortar fire, suppress a fire, and then others will advance forward. But you don't have this in the Civil War era. Like you said, you have forests, you have gunfire coming from you don't know where. Are there tactics to counter this, or are men just on the grounds? They're trying to find any sort of troop movement they can see and then fire at it. How do they move forward? What are they doing to try to get an offensive advantage here? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And so I would say in the wilderness, a lot of the ordinary soldiers referred to this in their memoirs that the fighting was almost like a riot. (laughs) It was almost, it, it kind of boiled down to just, at some points, it did descend to hand-to-hand combat, um, and where they, you know, the people are clubbing one another over the head with their rifles. But, um, but in the wilderness, though, the success usually depended on being on the defensive and being entrenched and being behind breastworks. And so it was extremely hard to launch an assault. A good example is on the second day of the wilderness is Robert E. Lee tried to assault an entrenched position on the Brock Road, and it was a disaster. Um, and one of his colleagues said, you know, that, that should have never been done. It was unwise. So to your point, did, did they discover anything? And they, they did. And it was at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. So about, it was four days after the wilderness, um, this Union general named Upton decides that when you assault an entrenched position, don't stop to fire your weapons, but rather rush it en masse and and overwhelm it with bodies so you can just kind of jump in to the entrenchments. And that seemed to work. (laughs) Um, Upton's charge on May 10th, 1864, even though it wasn't successful per se because they realized that they needed to have reinforcements, It was shockingly effective at first, and they discovered, okay, here's a new technique. And that is something that they did on a grander scale two days later at what was what is now known as the bloody angle at Spotsylvania Courthouse. So this notion of charging with a lot of men and not stopping to fire your weapon, but rather, you know, just go and try to get your troops in the trenches and fight there, um, really kind of caught the Confederates by surprise. Um, But a good question. I mean, the fighting in the wilderness, I think, as I mentioned that, you know, how they joked that it was like a riot, but they did mention that the fighting was almost at the company level. So it made it very hard for the division commanders to to have a a well-timed assault uh, because things were almost so atomized um, and they were being broken down at a, you know, at small groups versus small groups rather than uh, divisions or, or brigade level. So let's look at the victory at uh, Spotsylvania and how does uh, Grant achieve this and uh, what happens immediately afterwards? Yeah, so I think I'll refer, I, I, my book goes until, um, Spotsylvania is a kind of an interesting battle because it sprawls over a long period of time, but I kind of closed my book on the, um, on the bloody angle, which is May 12th. Um, And, you know, often referred to as the salient, but the bloody angle was one 
point in the salient. But long story short, that was where uh, Grant, I think, you know, wisely decides to kind of hit Lee at his most vulnerable point. Um, and it succeeds for one of the few errors on Lee's part, but Lee's kind of caught by surprise at, at this, um, at this, at his entrenchments outside of Spotsylvania Courthouse. And, um, you know, the union takes a lot of prisoners. Uh, it pushes Lee back a little bit. Once again, it was a kind of a qualified success. It, it, Lee did retreat somewhat, but it wasn't, you know, a, it wasn't a breakthrough. They didn't break Lee's line. He just pulled his line back a little bit. But it was a tangible success. And I think that um, the Union and the North were so desperate for victories, they liked to kind of bill it as a huge uh, victory. And one of the things that is, is interesting, if you read the Northern press, it covered the wilderness, you know, roughly the period from say May 4th until May 20th of 1864. It's very optimistic. So they're writing as if, you know, Grant is just doing a incredible job and Lee is near defeat. I think that the truth was that it wasn't quite so clear cut, um, but you almost see a, the North really kind of um, uh, wanting so badly to have something to be optimistic about. Um, and then one, one other note about, and today is the um, anniversary of this day. Hmm. And that is the, the bloody angle at Spotsylvania Courthouse occurred on May 12th, 1864. The, both sides fought for almost 23 hours and it was raining and they were in mud. And but that was one of the times where it descended into hand-to-hand -hand combat. So you had 23 hours of constant fighting, probably one of the worst days in military history for the United States Army was May 12th, 1864. And on May 13th, 1864, so today is May 13th, um, you have the first burials at Arlington National Cemetery, which was of course Robert E. Lee's former estate. So I connect those two events in my book because, you know, the sacrifice and the suffering and the death that occurred during this Overland campaign is juxtaposed with this need to honor the fallen United States soldier on Robert E. Lee's former property, you know? So it's almost also, it's almost a punishment to the person that they're fighting. Uh, well, it is a punishment to the person they're trying to fight. So anyway, I thought, I thought that those two stories uh, juxtaposed with one another, um, I think tells a, a, a great, it tells a lot about what was necessary to fight and how we commemorate those people who, who um, fought to save the Republic. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Something you note in your book is that when the fighting finally subsides on the late evening of the second day, Grant, who's normally stoic, uh, throws himself down on his cot and weeps, which is a very vivid image. Well, um, the aftermath is, of course, very significant uh, because the tempo of the war changes. But before getting into that, uh, I want to address a question that is constantly coming up with the Civil War, and that's the assessment of Grant and Lee. Now, in Civil War scholarship, for decades after the Civil War, there was the myth of the lost cause, mostly written by former Confederates, that the Confederacy should have won but didn't, just a gross material disadvantage. Uh, Robert E. Lee was a strategic genius, and um, almost no one has equaled him since then. Now, with a revisionist pushback, it said that, well, on a tactical level, yes, Lee was very smart, he was very brave, but he was so offensive-minded that he wasn't the right person to lead a battle or to lead a war effort when you really need somebody who knew how to fight a war of attrition, like Fabius in the Roman Empire, who fought against Hannibal of Carthage, another tactical genius. But Rome was at material advantage, so it simply had to retreat and treat and treat, force Hannibal to fight a war of attrition, which he couldn't win, and then Rome could eventually win. That's who you would need to lead the Confederacy, but uh, that was not Lee, so... However smart he was on a battlefield level and brave battles on the first battle of Bull Run, he wasn't the right person to lead the overall war effort, and Grant was the right person. So those are some of the different narratives that have happened in the back and forth of uh, Civil War historiography. What is your take on Grant and Lee? Yeah, I'd like to start with Lee because I think, so two things, and I've written about this first one, and that is... I think that the problem with the lost cause interpretation of the Civil War is that elevated Lee to a sort of a myth-like status. He, he no longer became human or real, and it became so distorted and so unrealistic that it doesn't give us an accurate assessment of him. So let's put that aside for a second. The lost cause version of Lee is obviously not one that is worth kind of engaging with. I think the real Robert E. Lee was a fine general. I mean, he was a very good leader. He, his men fought for him and they respected him. They thought that he could accomplish great things. To the point about his aggression, I think that ironically, he's sometimes his, best def- his own best defender. And he would argue, I invaded Maryland And then later, I I invaded Maryland in 1862 and Pennsylvania in 1863 because I needed food for my troops. You know, know, left to my own devices, sure, I would love to have 
sat behind a wall in Virginia and wait for them to attack me. <laughs> but, you know, I couldn't feed my army, you know. So um, he, Lee was, and I think he recognized when the war began that it was an uphill struggle because he had industrial, agricultural, you know, he had all these resource challenges to supply an army that was always going to be an uphill battle, so so to speak. So I think that his aggression, I think that his aggression probably, in my opinion, was appropriate because I think that his best hope was for a stunning victory where, where the United States said, you know what, this is not worth it. Go have your Confederate States of America and we're going to just move on. We don't want to send our boys to get killed in this unending thing. So I think Lee's audacity was maybe the what was necessary if if they were to have a chance. Because I'm actually someone is on the side of the, you know, the economic determinism, meaning I think the disparity in resources and economic wealth was so great that the North was, it was probably inevitable that they were going to overwhelm the South. So like, you know, Lee, Lee saw that too and felt, okay, my odds are low, but we're going to, we're going to be like a riverboat gambler and just, you know, see what we can accomplish. Um, and then over to Grant's side of things, Grant also, like Lee, knew what hand he held. And his hand was, I've got a lot of men, I've got a lot of resources. And if we keep at this thing, we are going to grind them down eventually. And I think he was right, right? Um, and I think that Grant had the ability to see what was necessary, but then also to do it. And I think that that's where McClellan and Hooker and Burnside came up short earlier in the war, is that they, they didn't have the will to do what was necessary because it was pretty horrific to suffer those sorts of losses. Um, and that it was also probably, in Hooker's case, it was also terrifying to imagine, oh my God, what if I destroy this army and there's nothing between us and, and Washington, you know, it's nothing between us and the rebels and DC, Washington, DC, you know what I mean? So, um, but I think Grant was able to kind of have a, a little more, you know, as I repeat the word term, I think Grant had the moral courage to believe in himself and, and know that if, if, he, if he even is a B plus, he's gonna win this, this war, you know what I mean? I Meaning if he only, if he does an above average job, he's gonna win, uh, and, and he was right. Um, and so anyway, I have great respect for both Lee and Grant. And I think that sometimes the common section kind of arguments falls into a kind of, if one is good, the other one has to be bad sort of argument style. And my, I think both were good and they were the two best generals of the war and both had different goals and different requirements and they had you know, they, once again, to use the poker metaphor, both Lee and Grant were given different hands to play and they played their hands accordingly. You know? Exactly. I mean, it. they understood exactly the type of war they were fighting and Lee, knowing the massive material disadvantage that the Confederacy had, figured that while I'm fighting the Union, the Union is a democracy and for them to continue to fund the war effort, there has to be popular will behind it. 
if they're demoralized by an enormous defeat, then that's going to take the wind out of their sails. Um, and you could find other examples of um, wars being lost because public sentiment no longer supports it. The British fighting the Revolutionary War, if the public is no longer behind it, then um, really what can they do? Um, they're not going to provide the troops, uh, provide the funds, provide whatever material resources they need to do so. One interesting similarity is both Grant and Lee were very aggressive. Um, and and um, one of Lee's uh, officers said, Lee is the most aggressive guy in this whole army. <laughs> so, um, so both of them were fighters. And I think it's, it's one thing they share, um, that they're, 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 they are ones who would not, not avoid a battle if, if there was one at hand. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Well, yeah, I mean, you make a point that, I mean, there's incredible long-term implications of this battle. Um, before we wrap up, are there anything else that you want to stress and what you get into with your book about all the long-term implications of uh, what the Battle of the Wilderness means, whether within the Civil War or even beyond it? Yeah, so I I think um, one of the points I'd make in the book is that I tried to bring in a, a moral dimension to this battle because I think that um, Frederick Douglass one time said that, you know, never forget that victory to the rebellion meant death to the republic. So the stakes of this were high and it matters a lot for American history to examine, well, what was necessary in order for the republic to win, right? So how did the union win and what, what kind of resources, what kind of um, decisions, what kind of strategy was necessary? And so that's a theme that I explore in the book. And then I also um, believe that the, that the Civil War is still with us today. And all of this trauma, you know, all of that horror, the fires, the wounded, the deaths, you know, 750,000 soldiers from both sides uh, dying in this war and, and countless casualties and, and economic destruction. That's still with us, in my opinion. Um, and I feel that we still are, are kind of almost trying to come to grips with uh, that conflict and all of that suffering and, and what have you. And then it's so funny because I made that point obviously in a symbolic, more abstract way. And then just recently, a few days ago, the lead of the rear episode um, as, has come in, is a, been a big issue in uh, Texas because their, uh, their fight song um, at the University of Texas is based on comments that were made during the lead of the rear episode uh, on, uh, at, uh, on May 6th in the wilderness. So I was thinking, well, it literally is still with us today because they're having this dispute about whether that song should be uh, continued to be uh, the fight song at University of Texas or not because of its origins, you know. Uh, anyway, so the wilderness is with us symbolically, and in in some instances, it's still kind of literally still with us. Yeah, there aren't many events from 150, 160 years ago that are as contemporarily discussed as the Civil War. So, uh, event that still has a lot of contemporary resonance. Well, we were only able to scratch the surface of this battle, of course, and there is a lot more to unpack there. And for listeners who want to. Uh, see more. Uh, the book is A Fire in the Wilderness. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. There you have it. That is all for today's episode. 
Once again, I want to start things off by thanking the Spy Masters of History Unplugged. I'll explain what that is in a second. Our Spy Masters include Bill Ivey, Moondoggy from Ohio, Tom from Ohio, Ryan Gillen, Rob from Chicago, Nick Brooks, Michael from New York, Carl from Norway, Josh Reddick, Jennifer French-Lee, Jay Carrington, McCraze, Salvador Sanchez, David Santi, Chris C., and Baron Fraser. If you'd like to support the show, there's some very easy ways to do so. First, go to the site halfpricehistory.com. I've worked out an arrangement with a lot of the authors who've appeared on this show, and you can go there and get their books for 50% off. All you have to do is go to halfpricehistory.com and enter the promo code UNPLUGGED at checkout. Second, please leave a review and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player of choice, whether Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever. Third, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and search for History Unplugged. There, you can talk with other fans of the show about recent episodes, what you liked, what you didn't like. Also, I have exclusive content there, such as live streams, where I do live versions of podcast episodes where you can leave feedback as I'm talking, and I will address it on air. Last, and I think this is the best, is to join our membership program, the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were George Washington's spies during the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the membership program for History Unplugged. If you go to patreon.com slash unplugged, you can join the membership program at three levels. If you join at the scout level, you'll get all 400 episodes of History Unplugged absolutely ad-free and early access to new episodes. If you join at the second level, the intelligence officer level, get all the stuff that scouts get along with bonus episodes. There's currently about 40 of them, including series on Audie Murphy and Operation Long Jump about the Nazi attempt to assassinate FDR, Churchill, and Stalin in 1943. Finally, if you join at the spymaster level, you'll get a shout out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You get a three pack of hardcover history books and you can find out what those are if you go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Finally, you can ask me a question about history on absolutely any topic on earth and I will research it and devote an entire episode to your question. Probably about 30% of the questions in the archive for the show have been based on these sorts of questions. So there you go. Go to patreon.com slash unplugged to learn more. All right. Well, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 and I'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calitrin for several weeks last year and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger, my workouts felt easier, I slept better, I was noticeably trimmer, there was no downside. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. 
Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.